0: be looking at the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, which you'll find on page 1242 of your blue Bibles, which is under the chair uh, in front of you if you're in the front row, uh, back rows underneath you if you're in the front row. This is God's word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This is God's word. You may be seated. So before I jump in, I had a little uh, midlife crisis moment about two months ago. I walked up to this pulpit, and as I put the bulletin down and the Bible down, I was like, why is it all of a sudden blurry? I wear reading glasses, but this is a perfect distance for me, and I can still see it and see you. And then I went to my hands to like put the Bible here, and I was bumping on this thing right here, this little square thing. I didn't realize there's a lever underneath that raises, and it was raised to the highest setting. And so... I thought I was shrinking because I'm like, I can't read, I can't, you know. So, little midlife crisis that was solved when I realized John found a lever underneath to raise this whole thing up. So, never knew that existed. So, in the show Fire Country, it's about a, a man named Bodhi. Here's a guy who messed up in every way of his life into drugs, into drinking, arguing with his parents. And he got to a point where one day, his sister came to him, was upset about a broken relationship. And so he's trying to get her out of that situation. And as he's driving her away, she's wanting to get out of the car because she wanted to go back to the situation. And so she tries to open the car while it's moving. And he, in his effort to hold her in the car, swerves into traffic, killing his sister, and then ostracizing him from his dad. And then he spiraled down from there into drinking, into drugs, and eventually stealing a car, which he was caught for, landing him in prison. Well, he had the opportunity for parole by serving on a fire brigade. So he goes to this camp. And where is this camp located? In his hometown. And so as he's serving on this fire brigade, people from his hometown know about this camp. And they're skeptical of this guy, this selfish, person who was not changed. And yet, after the death of his sister, he wanted to help people. He wanted to give back. He wanted to serve in this fire brigade so he could genuinely be a help to his community. And yet, people didn't believe he was changed. They thought he was that con, that selfish guy, that drug addict, that drunk. And they wouldn't give him the benefit of the doubt. Can you identify I know that Paul, as he's writing this letter of Ephesians from prison. Why is he in prison? Well, he was there because he talked about Jesus. He talked about the hope that comes from knowing Christ. He knew because he was this selfish, zealous, violent person who loved Christ, who loved the world, but then fell in love with Jesus when Christ came into his life. He knew he accomplished nothing on his own. It was only through faith in Jesus that he was radically changed. And people had a hard time believing that. Acts 9, Jesus in a vision after Saul came to faith, appeared to an Ananias. Ananias, go. You're going to meet Saul. You're going to pray for him. Ananias isn't so sure. That great persecutor, Lord, you know what he's done, Right? that doubt. And in that same chapter, as Paul is beginning to preach, people came to him and said, hey, have you come to bind up those Christians? And as you continue reading in Acts, as Paul tries to join the disciples, they don't want to accept him. They don't want to believe that he's changed. It took Barnabas, the son of encouragement, to stand up and say, yes, he is changed. He is a new man. Sometimes it's hard to convince people that we've changed. Sometimes it's hard to believe people are changed. As I did an internship in the presbytery uh, on my ordination process and journey, I did have the opportunity to go down into the Carlisle area into one of our prisons and serve alongside one of our PCA chaplains. And so I was able to serve in that prison for a two-day period with him, had opportunities to deliver Bibles onto the cell blocks, got to sit in on some Bible studies, and then had the opportunity to see this chaplain baptize a man who had come to faith within the prison. As I was sharing that experience, I shouldn't say it's amazing, but people were like, oh, yeah, they just want to get out of prison. They'll say anything, they'll do anything, to get out of there. It's all about them, it's all about them looking good so they can get paroled and get out of, the, out of the prison. Doubt in the change that God works in people. Many of us have done it. Many of us have doubted that God was genuinely at work in somebody. Maybe some of us sitting here, people have doubted that God was really at work in your life, thinking of your dramatic comer- conversion. Or maybe even thinking of a really bad decision that you've made that had consequences and believing that you really have changed since making that decision. So sometimes we doubt. That people doubted us. Well, Paul had plenty of time in prison to reflect on his life, to look at his life and, and remember what he was like before he knew Jesus, how he loved the law, how he loved learning, how he loved, in a sense, to make people follow what he thought was good. He was so zealous for the law that he had those Christians thrown in prison, some even killed for their faith, negatively impacting the lives of many people and families, not to say the church itself. And this was all in the zeal for his Jewish faith. So I have to believe, as Paul is sitting right in this book of Ephesians from prison— that his journey of faith is on his mind as he's writing these words. See, Paul would have known what it would have been like to pass from death to life on this Christian journey and to become more and more like Jesus Christ, growing in his faith, growing in his leadership through a variety of circumstances that he dealt with in his life. So the question as we jump into the word this morning is when you look at your faith journey, when you look at where you've been, when you look at what God has done in your life, where are you today? Do you find yourself patting yourself on the back, giving yourself a thumbs up, saying good job to me? Or are you humbled? Are you humbled by what God has done in your life? One of the purposes in writing to the Christian church in Ephesus was Paul wanted to encourage and build up the church to show that God is the one who brings salvation despite our unworthiness. So let's look at a pretty familiar passage to a lot of us, um, Ephesians chapter 2. So as we look at verses 1 to 3, Paul was clear to the church He was clear that before Christ, we were dead in our sin. No exceptions. No one was born perfect. No one was born having it all together. And Scripture throughout is clear in this fact that we have to come to grips with. Otherwise, there's no need for the good news. We have to hear bad news. So we're ready to hear the good news. And this bad news is we are dead in sin, every single one of us. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Ecclesiastes seven twenty: Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. John 3, 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Romans 3, 10 to 12 and 23, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need to hear this. We all need to hear this because many of us were dead in our sin, having no hope. And yet, in Christ, we have hope. Yet, for some of us sitting here, you still sit here as people dead in their sin. You think you're alive because you're here this morning. Hey, I've come to church. Some of us think you're good, you're alive, because you do good things. Maybe you read your Bible. Maybe you pray. Maybe you go out and help people. Some of you even think you're alive because you believe there's a God. And yet, none of those things make us a follower of Jesus. So before we know Christ... As this passage lays out, there are three things it says that has control over us. Things we have to see and acknowledge. First, he says, the course of this world. The message of the world that tells us how we're to live, how we're to be, how we're to act. As we think of our world, the messages are, live for yourself. Think of only you. Look out for yourself. The Nike slogan, just do it. You are in control of your destiny. Grab a hold. Let go of it. Never let go of it. Accomplish everything for you. That's the way of our world. And this is the way that oftentimes can creep subtly into the church. And some of us live by these truths. Truths, quote, or messages of the world. That's the first power, he says, that has control over you as somebody who's not following Jesus. The second thing he says that has power over us is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Satan. The spirit who is at work and knows who are disobedient. Those who are living contrary to God's word. Satan is real. And he has power over those who are not living for and serving the Lord. Those who do not belong to Jesus Christ. See, many in the world... Many churches say, there's no such thing as Satan. He's a figment of your imagination. He's whatever you create him to be. That was a church I grew up in. And yet, Satan is real. He wants us to serve him. He wants us to worship him. Even think of the temptation of Christ in Matthew. He says to Jesus, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you will just bow down and worship me, as if it was his to give. We cannot withstand the power of the evil one and his influence alone. We need Jesus. And so some of us sitting here this morning are still under control and the power of the evil one because. We have not put our faith in Christ. The third power. The third power he mentions is the power of our own flesh. Before we knew Christ, all we can do is follow the desires of our flesh. And we know some of those desires. Power, lust, sex, greed, control, and the list can go on and on. Apart from Christ, we yield to those desires. We serve those desires. Those desires rule us. And some of us sitting here can testify to the fact of how those desires had power and control over our lives. It was what we lived for. It was what we went to, to bed thinking about. is what we woke up thinking about is how we could satisfy the passions and desires of the flesh. That's who we were. But for Christ, we have hope. But sadly, some of us sitting here are still being ruled and have power, those, those desires have power over us. And then Paul, after listing those things that have power over us, he says to the church of Ephesus, he communicates to us today, you, because of those powers, because of that influence, because of giving in to those, he says, you were children of wrath, justly deserving God's judgment justly deserving, an eternity separated from the Lord forever. You were children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Those people who will never repent of their sins, who will never acknowledge they have a problem, who are all about themselves and want nothing to do with the Lord. Paul wants to make sure he tells the church, that was your story. That was who you were. You justly deserved God's wrath and punishment. You deserved to die spiritually without any hope. That was our journey. That was the hopelessness that we lived in. Like the rest of mankind who are still lost, who still don't realize and see their need for Jesus, that's who we were. And so Paul is reminding us. And again, as he's writing this, I'm sure he's remembering his own journey, that moment when he came face to face with the depth of his sinfulness and his own depravity, his desire to snuff out the church, and seeing that it was about him, that he was lost and dead and had no hope. It's a hard truth he would have had to come to grips with. It's a hard truth we have to come to grips with. And yet, we need to hear this bad news if we're ever even going to understand the impact of the good news. Now, if Paul had ended Ephesians right in those first three verses, that would have been cruel. That would have been hopeless. And yet, he goes on. Come to verses 4 to 7. One of the best... There's a lot of good transitions. One of the best transitions in Scripture as we come to verse 4. But God. See, we're just painted a picture of what our works had earned for us. An ugly, hopeless picture. And now we see here in but God a transition from the power of the world, the power of Satan, the power of our own flesh, now to the power of God. But God what? Being rich in mercy and showing a great love to us. Now, these are not things that God became just for us in our own time of need, in our own time of depravity, but we are given attributes of God that are part of who he is. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of love. That's who he is. And that love, that mercy is directed to us as his people. See, this is not an impersonal God who doesn't love us, doesn't show mercy to us, isn't involved in our lives. But he's very much part of our day-to-day lives. God isn't just winding up the world, lets it go, and then has nothing else to do with it. This is a God who is involved with us. In verses 5 to 7, show the depth of that love, that mercy that God shows to us. So I want you to see in these these verses, five to seven, these actions, they're done by God, not by us. And that's a humbling thing to step back and think about that I didn't affect any of these changes. So what does it say? When we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Dead things cannot make themselves alive. Something outside of them themselves has to, to do that work, to make that thing alive. And God is the one who did that work. And that's what we see in the first part of how dead we were, and the power over us. But through faith in Christ, we have been raised to life. God has made us alive. Just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he raises us from the dead. And so we're alive with Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. And he further out says in these verses, by faith, faith being something we didn't earn, something we don't deserve, by faith you have been saved. Not by your action. Something else has to save us. But by God, saved by God. Come back to that in verse 8. Then it says, God raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christ has ascended to heaven. He is our high priest. He is interceding for us, behalf of us, before the Father. And so we have that hope of being in heaven one day. It's a guarantee. We have that place as God's children. John 14, 3, Jesus promises his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will come back and take you to be where I am. So that's a truth, that's a hope we can hold on to as God's people. And because Jesus is with the Father, because he's interceding for us, It also says here, God in the coming ages will show immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, that ultimate hope of eternal life. But also thinking how God is going to continue to work in and through his people, in and through the church, how he's going to continue to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, this is immeasurable. It overflows. It knows no end. Unlike the grace we like to show, it has limits for us. God's grace has no limits. It's immeasurable. And where is it found? We've got to come back to this. It is found in Jesus Christ. Not ourselves, not our desires, not any other person, but in Christ. Nowhere else. This is the good news of the gospel. What is dead is now alive through faith in Jesus. No other way. There's no amount of being good enough, no amount of performing enough good acts. It's only through trusting Jesus Christ that he's the one that did the work for us on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. These truths will challenge some of us because your faith... As you think about it, it's about you. It's about you thinking, you know, I hope in the end my good outweighs my bad. Because this message of grace is not a message we hear in our culture today. In fact, in a lot of ways, it runs contrary to our culture. There's a belief that you don't get something for nothing. There's got to be some way in which I need to pay back what people have given me. And so many people, I've talked to many Christians who feel guilty, feel indebted when somebody gives them a gift, when somebody does something good for them because i got to pay it back. And I think of that picture of a gift of a car. Say somebody comes to you. Gives you a nice expensive car, a car you've always dreamed for, you always want. It comes with all the bells and whistles. It's even in the color you want. And when you realize they've just given it to you, you didn't do anything. You didn't ask for it from them. You didn't do anything to deserve it. And now all of a sudden guilt sets in. Can't be free. I got to give something or I'll give $10. I mean, it's tiny compared, but you know, at least I'll appease my conscience and my guilty conscience by giving that $10. What do we just nullify? That it's a gift. You know, a gift is given without any want or desire of repayment. And that's what we do when we pay back. And God's grace, God's mercy is given to us as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. There's nothing we can do, nothing we have to do to pay it back. You can never pay it back. 2 Kings 5 gives us a picture of that. We look at Elisha, and Naaman comes to him and has leprosy. Somebody says, just go see Elisha. He'll know what to do, and so Naaman comes. Elisha says, go dip in the river. And he does. He listens to him. And he's healed of his leprosy. So Naaman, in a sense, feeling guilty, says, what gifts can I give you because you've just cured me of this disease? And so he wants to pay back, and yet Elisha, in the spirit of the Lord, said, I cannot take any kind of gift. God has done this for you. Now Elisha had a servant named Gehazi, and Gehazi was like, you're going to take something, right? No. This is a gift from the Lord. And so Naaman leaves. Gehazi follows after Naaman and catches up with him and says, makes up a story to say, hey, we, we need a gift back. There's some prophets. We need to provide for their needs. So we need you to, to give something, you know, if you can give something towards that need. So Naaman gives it, thinking this is from Elisha. Well, Elisha finds out, and he confronts Gehazi. And what happens is the leprosy of Naaman is now on Gehazi. He becomes leprous. Gehazi did not understand grace, this gift that God had given to Naaman. So that brings us to verses 8 to 10. Paul gives a summary of just what he's just gone through in these first seven verses. And to summarize for the Ephesian church, what does this mean? Kind of the so what. And so he tells them, first, you have been saved by grace through faith. Not your own doing. It is the gift of God. You can't accomplish it. You can't earn it. You can't pay for it. Those are all impossibilities. That's something we don't want to hear oftentimes. We have to give something. And if that's our attitude, we don't understand grace. Some of us sitting here, if we're honest, the things you do here in the church, do things you do in your faith, you're doing out of a sense of obligation because you feel you need to pay God back. That's not what God wants. God wants our hearts He wants our love. He wants to serve him because we love him. Because of what he's done for our lives. He gave us life because we're his. We're his children. I can remember going down to Honduras and serving with Greg Moore on some of our medical missions, and we had the opportunity to meet some of the interns there. And I remember there being an intern who grew up in the church, and she had just talked about all the ways she served in her church, being involved with her youth group, being involved with a worship band in her church, you know, doing service projects and going to Sunday school and listing all these things. And she came to a kind of a crisis point in her life where some things were not quite working out. Basically, her attitude became, God, how come you're allowing these things to happen? Look at all the ways in which I've served you. She came to realize that she was living out a works-based righteousness. That I'm right with God because of the things I do. That I'm more right. The more I do, the more right I become with God. She missed grace. And now she was serving on the mission field because she realized what grace was. It was serving the Lord out of love. Not as an obligation, not in a payback, because, but because I want to go where you send me, because I love you, what you've done for me. So that's his first summary point. You've been saved by grace, through faith. The second one is, you can't earn this salvation by works. Otherwise we could boast. You sing in the choir? Ha. Huh. I've sang in the choir before, but I've also done service projects. And I've gone on a missions trip. Somebody else could go, huh. Or I could go, huh, I'm a pastor. I've been to seminary. I've been on like 30 missions. I mean, we could continue to one-up each other if we're saved by our works. We would have things to boast in. We'd be trying to better each other and best each other. That's not what God wants. He wants our works, yes, but out of love not for us, not out of obligation. Which leads to his last point. Paul gives the people a picture of who we are in Christ. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. This was his plan. And God is making us into the men and women of God that he wants us to be, not us. Now, God did save us to do good works, but not to earn salvation, but to demonstrate whose we are. We are children of the living God, saved by grace through faith. And so those works stem out of that love, not out of that obligation. And I think of what we just heard in the last month or so as Pastor Hayward took us through Genesis 1 to 3, showing us how we are created in the image of God created to work in the garden. Man had an intimate relationship with God, but then through sin it was broken. And so now the second Adam, Christ has come. And so now that dead man who is dead in Adam, dead in sin, is now made alive in Christ. And so now we can have that intimacy with God, that restoration of that relationship. And now we can do good works again, but they are done in Christ. Ezekiel 37 gives us a good picture of what Paul has taken us through here in chapter 2. Ezekiel is taken out and shown a valley of dry bones. And the Lord says, speak to those bones, but they're dead. And then the Lord says, "Do you think they can live Ezekiel? Do you think those bones can live?" And Ezekiel says, "Lord, you alone know. prophesy." So as he prophesies to the bones, the bones rattle, and they come together, forming a person again, and yet, without breath, they're still dead. And then God says, "Prophesy to the breath." And so he speaks the truth of God's word and a breath comes in to those bones and they are made alive. Remember. Remember your story. Remember how you were dead, that you had no hope, that you were under the power of the enemy and God made you alive in Christ. We need to remember and we need to share our stories. We're all on an incredible journey as we think of men and women who passed from death to life. Now, some people might look at you in doubt. Doubt whether you're really changed. Doubt whether God has done this work in your life. Paul showed that through his life. As he continued to preach, continued to serve, people saw that he was changed by God. He was changed serving the Lord. And so we can all show the watching world who we are in Christ as they see our changed lives. Now this starts first is, we've got to admit we're sinners. We've got to admit we're without hope on our own. And we have to ask God to forgive us. We need to trust in what Christ did for us on the cross. He alone saves us from our sin. And so our story doesn't start with us. It starts with the Lord, what he's done in and through our lives. And so where is your hope this morning? Where is your faith this morning? Is it in you and your works and what you think you need to be doing? Or have you put your trust and hope in Jesus Christ? That's where this journey starts. That's where this new life begins is in Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for the hope that's in Christ, the hope that we have through faith in him. Lord, remind us how we were dead, how we were lost, how we had no hope. But because of Jesus, dying on a cross for our sins and putting our hope in him, we have passed from death to life. We, who are dry bones, are now alive. And that's not because of anything we did. Because of the work you did in us. Lord, you know our hearts today. You know that person or those people sitting here this morning who are still living according to their own works, who are trying to do just enough. Show them what it means to be saved by grace, through faith, and Jesus Christ alone. And we thank you for that hope that so many of us have. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.